Computer, initialize Holosuite. Star Trek Books. They've been around for decades. Join us, the Trek ladies, Kavora and Jen, as we discuss the novels one at a time. Welcome to the Ladies Trek Library. Okay, so we are back with Ladies Trek Library. I'm Kavora, and I'm here with Jen. Hello, Jen. Hey, Kavora. I'm happy to be back. All right, so this time our book is Corona by Greg Bear. And I'll read the description on the back of the book. An awesome, sentient force of protostars, Corona, has taken control of a stranded team of Vulcan scientists. The Enterprise has come on a rescue mission with a female reporter and a new computer that can override Kirk's command. Suddenly, the rescuers must save themselves and the entire universe before Corona unleashes a big bang. So that's it. And this book, let me just, I was trying to check when it was written. Yeah, it was published in 1984. And we, we chose this book mostly for the name Corona. And I think the book is kind of making a comeback now because people are reading it because, I mean, just because the coronavirus is so huge right now, we're still under the quarantine. But the book really doesn't have to do with the coronavirus. Um, corona is actually a, a word in science that means like, it's something like the gaseous cloud around the sun, and that's where they got the name of the book. We'll just um, jump right in. So, so Jen, how, how did you feel about um, some of the characters in this book, like the, the new characters that, that were introduced in this book? Yeah, we had two new characters. Um, we had a, a reporter, uh, Rowena Mason, and then uh, a guy uh, who was sent, uh, I guess, would you call him a Starfleet, um, a Federation, uh, trying to think of the word, kind of like a desk jockey, um, who's uh, responsible for monitoring uh, and reporting on these new computers that have been installed in the Enterprise. Um, and the character of Bevelin, uh, he, he reminded me a lot of, uh, characters that we have seen on the original series, sort of the, the you know, the pencil pusher um, who comes in from headquarters, um, who's, you know, uh, kind of at odds with Captain Kirk and the rest of the crew uh, because he's all about being by the book. Um, so, and I, and so I liked him as a character and he kind of had an interesting, the way things ended with him was a little interesting, which we can talk about later. Um and then the character, Mason, the reporter, I, I don't know how I felt about her as much. I mean, part of me kind of thought she's a little bit of a Mary Sue character. Um, she's a, rep a reporter from a colony planet that's very sheltered. She's never met aliens before. And this is her big assignment uh, is to be on board the Enterprise. Um, and she has a lot of prejudices against aliens. Um, but, but she wasn't a terrible character. Um, and she also sort of had a, a nice arc where at the end um, where she, you know, experienced a lot of new things and her opinions about things changed. So about 
you know, Veblen, I, I saw him, like, he was the computer guy, right? Because the, the so the enterprise has, has this new computer installed that can, well, they call it monitors, that um, there's the command monitor that can run command, and then there's the medical monitor that um, that, that has to do with, um, with with uh, what doctors do, Dr. McCoy's field, and so Veblen is the one that that's there to um, maintain the computers, and he's supposed to be the expert on these on these monitors. And so they say he's not exactly Starfleet, he's not a military person, but but he's there because those monitors are there, and he's the expert on those. And I thought I thought he was a good character. I I just I mean he seemed to be you know of course he was very capable. But also, he, he got along. I think he, he did his job, and he was willing to uh, to work with the people. And, and he admitted that, you know, once we got into the story, he wasn't sure that the whole monitor thing was a good idea, even though he said he still had to defend it because that was his job. So he, to me, was a character of integrity, and I liked that. As far yeah. as, yeah. Oh, you know, do you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I agree. That's one thing that was nice about him, he wasn't exactly the stock character who comes in from the outside, who's, you know, in the beginning, he kind of seems that way, um, that he's going to defend these computers against Captain Kirk's actions. If the computers, you know, the computers have this ability to override uh, the captain or the doctor if they think that they're making a wrong decision. Um, and so in the beginning, he seems like he might be a foil for Captain Kirk and that he's going to stick with whatever the computers say. Um, and he does say that he has to do that for his job, but we do see that he is sympathetic to Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy, and he doesn't necessarily agree that the monitors are always making the right command decisions. Um, so, so he doesn't really end up being a foil. And as, as far as the reporter, you know, uh, Rowena Mason, she was so, – so, of course, she was like the main guest star in this book, and – we, we know that she's she's young and she's never left her home planet. She's from a, a human colony, and she is a reporter. And I mean, I mean, yeah, she she does come aboard with all of the these prejudices because she she's never seen any aliens before, and so she's she's sort of like standoffish with with Spock because he's a Vulcan. And yeah, yeah, her character was like like it starts out not being very likable, and you know because you're looking at her going, I mean, really, this is Star Trek, and you're you're this racist type of person. But I mean, and I but I do like how she interacted with with Uhura. That so they made her roommates with Uhura, and Uhura was very nice to her and and kind of and told her like you you know you need to get over your your prejudices because you know we've seen a lot and we know that. I mean, everybody's, you know, what, almost like what, what is going on in the world today. They're saying, like, everybody's important. Humans are important, but we're not more important than the aliens. And, um, and like you said, uh, Mason does go through this arc in the story. The, you know, the problem I have is that she, it, it's almost like she, the, the character was created just to, um, to get over her prejudices. I mean, I mean the story's not as satisfying when you, when you can kind of see the wheels turning, like when you know that, like she's only there so that so that she can learn a lesson. I just kind of, you know, got that feeling from her. Yeah, I agree, and I also felt like sometimes bringing in an original character 
you know, adds a lot to the story. And of course we had episodes in the original series where there are new characters that come in that are humans from Starfleet or just other humans. Um, and they add to the story, but in this book, I sort of felt like, like not only was she just there to learn a lesson, but a lot of the scenes and things that happen could have been given to a, a character that we already had. So, I mean, they, you know, of course not the lesson being learned, but a lot of the things that she observed and how she moved the plot forward, that could have been Ohura who really wasn't in the story very much. Um, or it could have been one of these other characters. Like we really didn't see Sulu at all. Um, Scotty was like, you know, he had a couple of lines. Um, so, you know, that, that was my other thought too. Why not, give more more of this to a character that's, you know, part of the crew rather than creating an original character. But Right. And maybe it was just the the way they had to do it back then and have these these guest characters. Um and another thing was that there was you know, besides Spock, they in this book they said there's one other alien on the ship and his race is Andoran. And I kind of of wonder if if the if the writer meant to say Andorian because he never really described what the what the person looked like. Did, did you? Did you that? Oh well, it's interesting because I read the, I have the um the paperback version, but I actually read it on my Kindle because I was reading it a lot at night and I needed the light. Um, okay. And and so, but the Kindle version of this book is very. Um, this happens some on the older ones. It's like they used a a computer or something to transcribe it all. So a lot of the words come out, like there'll be a gap between two, you know, in the middle of a word, there's like a space or the, like the lines are messed up or some of the words, you know, don't transcribe exactly. They'll have a weird symbol in the middle. So I, if I saw that in there, then I probably assumed that it was part of the bad um, ebook, uh, you know, format. Okay. So I didn't notice it. Probably because I just saw it and was like, oh, yeah, it's messed up like a lot of these other things in here. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, that's interesting. So if people read the ebook version, they'll kind of get uh, a different sense of the story, I guess. So, so Yeah. The, okay. And it's the actually – oh, I'll just say it too about the ebook. It, it's actually – in this case, it, it was good that I had the actual copy because there were a couple of times where the – formatting was so messed up that it, it wasn't clear like who was speaking because you couldn't really see the paragraph format. So I actually had to go in and look at the, the book. Um, and I have had that problem with eBooks before. So that's kind of a shame. Yeah. It doesn't sound good. I think they've made it better for the modern eBooks, right? It's just these older ones that have that problem. Yeah. It's just the older ones. Okay. <clears throat> so, so the, yeah, the Andoran, they, and they had a name for him too. Um, I forgot his name right now, but he wasn't really a major character in it, but he was someone that they said is obviously an alien because it was someone else that Mason kind of was squeamish about. So, so, and then when we start talking about, you know, the, the major characters like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, how do you, how do you feel they were handled in this book? I think they, uh, the author did a good job. Um, as I mentioned, you know, Sulu's really not in it. Uh, Maybe he's mentioned in one line or two. Um, Scotty has a couple of lines. Um, most of the scenes are Kirk, Spock, uh, McCoy, and um, and then there's a, an arc with Chekhov, who's who gets uh, you know the alien starts to control him. Um, so it's not really even him as a character; it's him being controlled by the alien. But um, I mean, as far as how those characters were all handled, I thought I thought well. I thought you know they all. 
fit in character? I thought they were um, <clears throat> they they were done pretty well. I mean, and like you said, some of, some of the characters were were hardly in this book, but but the the talks between Kirk and McCoy, like so McCoy said, well, I'm not sure if um, if we should really have Mason on the ship right now, but Kirk said, well, it, it's my orders, we have to keep her here, and I guess that is. In, in some ways, that is like Kirk, but I think he would have done something else if he really if he really thought it was too dangerous for her. But um, but yeah, that that was okay. Um, one thing I think is, so, so having the computers that could, they could take over command, and of course that makes you think of of the ultimate computer, the episode, right? Yeah. And so so my point is just in that, you know, so it, it's almost like this writer he didn't even mention the ultimate computer. It would have been nice if they had given. Some kind of homage to it, like, well, we've had we've had a computer take over the ship before, and it was a disaster. But we think it'll be different this time. They, you know, if they had said something like that. But my point is, in the ultimate computer, Kirk, you know, was was afraid of losing command, and and so they mentioned about Captain Dunzel, and it, you know, that was just something. It made Kirk kind of lose his um his momentum and kind of almost felt sorry for himself, like which he never has. And that that was a good examination in that episode of Kirk's character. So now in this book we have Kirk he doesn't really feel threatened by by this machine computer. He just feels more like you know, he I mean he he is skeptical about it, but he he doesn't seem um as um afraid that it that it might actually work. Did you get that? Or do you yeah, feel I, a different way? I, I think so. I did feel um, partly like, oh, well, Kirk seems to be taking this in stride. Um, but then I thought a lot of the scenes where he was talking about his feelings about it were in front of Mason. And so, of course, he had to put on the front. You know, she kept trying to get him to admit that he doesn't like the monitors and that he's, uh, you know, she wants a good story out of it. And, of course, he doesn't want a newspaper story you know, making him out to look like he doesn't want to follow regulations. So he's very careful about what he says to her. So that was part of it. Um, but they didn't really ever give uh, any scenes where you just get his his feelings alone on it. Um, you know, it's kind of all just dialogue with him and the reporter Mason. So we don't really know how he felt. And we can only assume that, you know, this obviously knowing his character, that he would not have liked that. Um, but I also wonder... I. Do you know when the book was set? Because I couldn't really tell from the from reading it, like what time period it was set in. Yeah, that was strange because uh, I mean, well, they, it said that Kirk is 45, and there, there was an episode of the original series where Kirk was 35. So that you know, so I was thinking, yeah, it's 10 years after the original series, but there's they still want it to be before. It's probably before Star Trek: The Motion Picture, even though um, the cover of the book has has. Kirk and Spock in the uh, motion picture uniforms, but uh, but I think in that era they just wanted to use those uniforms for all the covers. So yeah, I mean I think it's during the five year mission, but you're right, it doesn't really say. You just have to kind of infer that because that could affect how you know if it, it took place you know after the motion picture and later on, maybe Kirk's uh, sort of has the attitude that he knows things are going to change with this and he's not worried about these monitors. He figures they're it's just something temporary. You know, it just – we just don't know. Right. We just – yeah, we're, we don't know, at, you know, exactly what he felt exactly. Yeah, because I do know – yeah, he when he, he was talking to Mason, he wanted to give 
a certain impression to her, and, and he didn't want to say what he really thought. Um, now, now, the thing about McCoy in this book, that that one page that said that uh, McCoy gets very emotional and he actually has to take drugs to counteract that, that was something new. Yeah, and they just kind of threw that out there, um, you know, and didn't really explain it other than this one line about, uh, you know, McCoy's talking about how his emotions and things like that and how, and, you know, dealing with sort of depression is hinted at and how he has to take medication to control his emotions. But then they don't talk about it again. And it's kind of like, I wonder why that was in there. Yeah, that was strange. Um, and as far as Spock, I think he was, he was just Spock in this book. He, I think he, he was in character, but, and he was, but he was only used as far as, um, how he related to the story. There were, there were no real insights except, you know, finding out that he has this other relative that the, the, uh, the Vulcan woman to Prela is related to Spock through some, you know, complex thing on his father's side. And, uh, and actually, yeah, yeah, we didn't mention the other, the Vulcans that were on the station. As far as their characters, I think, um, well, well, the thing is, they they didn't really act Vulcan-like through most of the the book, just because they had been taken over by this alien entity. And um, you know, I do like how how the book added more to to Vulcan culture. It had all these Vulcan words and things, and that was you know that was interesting, but it wasn't really like it was it was more like trivial things as far as the story was concerned. Uh, yeah. Well, they did they the the Vulcan characters, it's hard to, I mean, they were being controlled by an alien presence, so they didn't, they weren't really acting in character. Um, I, I did have to kind of chuckle at the fact that this Vulcan researcher, um, Taraus, uh, or, sorry, Taprilla, uh, Taraus is her daughter, you know, happens to be related to Spock. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they can't just have a Vulcan researcher. She has to be related to Spock somehow. And they, they don't really, they, they kind of explain it, but it's complicated how they're related. Um, cousins or something. And of course he's met her once. Um, but we don't really get to see too much of them as Vulcans because they're by the time, you know, when we first see them, they're, they're being controlled by an alien presence. Um, there is one brief mention um, of this ritual, the Kani four, um, which they don't explain in a lot of detail. And I don't, um, I mean, I looked it up. I don't, I don't see anywhere else in the novels or on the show where this was ever mentioned um, before or again. Um, so we don't really know what it is. It's just some ritual that Vulcans uh, undergo when they're children. And from what um, I could gather from, from reading the book, it seems that um, the, because these, the two children, uh, Tuprilla's two children, Radek and Tarouse, uh, were so young, uh, when these alien presence, when the alien presence came, they had not yet undergone the Kani 4 ritual. And so that made their minds more susceptible to the alien presence. And the alien was able to use them, uh, as its main, you know, the, the children were the main, way that the alien was controlling everything and through the children it could also control the adults um and so the best i could determine is that this ritual has something to do with uh, once they undergo the ritual then their mind is more set um, and they're more in control of their own mind but until they undergo it their mind is susceptible to influences um but there really wasn't a lot of background given on that so it was kind of a bit confusing i got the impression that the 
you know, so so it, it, the alien entity, which um, they had named Corona, it, it was easier for it to, to um, control the children because it started influencing the children first. But then it but then it could control the adults because it did. But somehow it, it just it was able to um, control the children first just because it was easier for them. And, and yeah, about the, the Connie Four ritual, I mean, the book did say it was a ritual, but to me, the, w- the way they did it in the book, it was just a mind meld. So, so I assume that's the way it's always done, is that an adult mind melds with a child, and, and it must be whatever, because we don't know what it, whatever they, you know, told them or what images they gave them in the mind meld, but that must be the, the ritual part of it. That's the part that we don't know, what what exactly happens there. Yeah, and it was a little weird that so the the children were under the aliens' influence, um, and then um, you know they we the crew discovered that the alien was able to influence everyone through the Ibacra radiation, and so if they could shield the the Vulcans from radiation, the alien could not get to them to control them, and so they made these shields, so they were able to get uh, the uh, Radak, who's the son. Um, shielded so that the alien could no longer infiltrate his mind. But by that point, he had been under the alien influence for most of his life since he was very young, so he really couldn't think on his own. And then it was like, oh, then his mother can perform this Connie Four ritual, and then it'll be harder for the alien to, if, if he's no longer shielded, it'll make it more difficult for the alien to influence him again. And that kind of just didn't make sense. It was like, oh, let me do this ritual, and then then you'll be able to fight against the alien. Right, right. When even when even the adults, you know, were, were controlled by the alien too. So right. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing you mentioned about how the the Vulcan words like Connie Four were like there's there's no other reference to it. I, I mean, I I like that that the book has other Vulcan words, but then nothing in the, in this book was really you know like the way like some of um, Diane Duane's Romulan words and things were were used in other books that were not written by her, but nothing in this one was really carried over. I guess no one really felt like this one, you know, had enough content or just or made enough of an impression to really uh, use again. Yeah, I think that there may have been one other Vulcan word, which um, so uh, it ends with Tuprilla, the mother is able to perform this ritual on her son Roddick, but her daughter, Tarouse, is still on the planet, um, and the reporter, Mason, is there. And so she's going to have to be the one to administer this Connie Four to Tarouse, the daughter. Um, and she first does a mind meld with Spock so that Spock can impart memories um, of, and, you know, let her know how to do this because he's, he's not going to be able to do it because the aliens are taking over him. Um, and so I think there's a scene where she's sort of processing the memories that Spock has transferred to her from the mind meld. And there's like a, maybe a Vulcan word. I think I remember uh, that she hears this, sees this word in her mind and wonders what's that. Um, but aside from that, really, it's, you know, there's nothing about Vulcan culture or anything like that. Um, as we mentioned, most of the book is the Vulcans are already under the influence of the alien when the Enterprise crew meets them. So they're not behaving very Vulcan like. And that's how the crew is able to discover that something's wrong because uh, Spock immediately is able to tell, you know, they're they're not behaving like normal Vulcans and they're actually not even behaving like 
Vulcans with a mental illness or insane Vulcans. They're, they're definitely something going on. And it's probably that they're being controlled by an alien. And, but, but there is one thing I did like was the idea that, that Taprila was, um, almost a Vulcan dissident, how she, she used, she used a different type of logic, which made the other Vulcans kind of, um, I don't know. They chastised her. They didn't. They didn't like her her form of logic. I mean, that was an interesting idea, and I wish the book could have gotten more into that, but it couldn't because she, you know, wasn't herself in this book. Yeah, they meant, and I I agree that would have been really interesting to delve into that. They mentioned, uh, it was mentioned by Spock at the beginning when they're on their way to this planet that um, Taprilla had kind of been exiled um, from Vulcan, um, not exile in the way that Cybok was, but sort of more made like a persona non grata and that she, you know, they were really didn't accept her ideas um, about logic on Vulcan, but that since she had been living, um, you know, in ex quote unquote exile, that uh, things had changed on Vulcan and that her theories were becoming more accepted, but they didn't ever explain what those theories were. And that would have been very interesting. And so, any other things about how we, they handled the Star Trek universe? So we've talked about the Vulcans and the like, the ultimate computer. Any other thoughts on other other things that it led that that um it added to Star Trek continuity or canon? Um, well, at, not so at the end of the book, um, we have this sort of what ends up happening um is and in spoil alert, obviously, um if you. <laughs> <laughs> We've okay. kind of given away enough spoilers already. Um, but it's something that's kind of very a typical ending for me um, in the original series, which is that um, the alien entity, we get to view some of its thoughts, and it really, uh, it's from another universe, and it doesn't really view the Vulcans that it's controlling as a life form. It does view it as a life form, but not exactly as sentient. It just kind of doesn't really understand their thought process and doesn't really think that they're worthy of um, allowing them to live. Uh, it's just using them for its own means because it, it doesn't have matter. So it needs a, a body with matter to, you know, build this stuff for it. Um, but because of the Vulcan's devotion to logic, it, this alien entity just views them as, Oh, I don't really understand this. They're all about logic. You know, they're, that's, they're sort of beneath me. And it's not until, the alien comes into mental contact with Mason, the reporter who's human. Um, and she makes a plea to the entity to not destroy the universe. Um, because there are people and beings living in it. Um, and she expresses some of her memories and feelings about life and that the alien realizes, Oh, you know what? These things that I've just been thinking of as tools to my own, you know, to help me, they really are living beings, um, and they have emotions. And so it's kind of like the moral of the story is, you know, pure logic isn't, doesn't win the day. It's not until the alien encounters a human who's able to convey emotion that the alien realizes, oh, these beings have emotion, that they, they must be worthy to live. And we've seen that before in Star Trek, the, the showing that it's, it's humanity is, what triumphs in the end over pure logic. And even Spock kind of makes a comment about that um, saying, well, you know, if, if the humans hadn't gotten involved and this alien had just been dealing with the Vulcans, like the universe probably would have been destroyed because the Vulcans were adhering to their logic. 
that that was an interesting idea at the end. Um, I, I mean, I, I mean, I I feel like the book had had that that great payoff at the end where the uh, the being decides to change it, its mind instead of you know like because it was going to create a new universe which would have de- destroyed this universe and it didn't care, but then it it decides well to not do that, and, and it was because of Mason. Really, it's because of the you know. T- Combining, you know, touching minds with Mason that it decided that uh, maybe the, these living beings do have value. Um, and I guess – and if we want to, like, get into the, you know, now our likes and dislikes about it, that was I, – I just – I didn't really like that it was it was the guest character that turned out to be the hero of the story. I mean, it kind of – you know, it, it was good for her because it was good for her, her story arc. This was how she learned to, to accept people, but it was kind of like – I mean, it you know, it's it's a Star Trek book. It should have been more like one of the main characters who who was able to to save the day in the end. Yeah, I agree. I felt the same way. It, guest star is the hero who saves the day. Um, I guess we've seen that on some episodes, but again, I just felt like there there were you know crew members that really weren't part of the story, and it, and it could have they they could have been rather than having this guest character. I mean, in some ways, it's like, you know, the the previous book we reviewed, Uhura Song, where where the the, the writer seems more comfortable with the uh, with the guest characters than the um, established characters from the show. Yeah, in Uhura Song, we had the character um, whose name I now I'm blanking out on the doctor Evan uh, was it Evan Wilson? Yes. Yeah, who who was like the main star of the show, of the story, not Uhura, despite the title. Um, and then similar here, it's like they bring in a a new character and and make them the star, um, which you know is not. I it, I didn't really like that, but I I still thought it was a good book. I enjoyed it. Um, it was short, um, but it was fast enough moving and and it was interesting. Well, I know that uh, this writer, uh, Greg Bayer, he was a science fiction writer, and this was his only Star Trek book. And and it did say, like like right at the beginning when he did his acknowledgments, I think he he did say that that he is a Trekkie, that he helped illustrate the uh, the Star Trek Concordance. But but to me, I think j- just from reading the book, it it didn't feel to me like he was a Star Trek fan. Um, I mean, for one thing, like like I mentioned, the Ultimate Computer. I mean, I wonder if he even saw that episode. Um, he did mention the Horda, so we know he saw Devil in the Dark, but but you know, it just seemed like he it it just didn't I don't it didn't ring ring to me as much of a Star Trek story. But even though even though it did it did get better at the end. The end was very Star Trek because it had the um the the evil character who turned out to be not as evil, and it had the uh, the woman Mason, who who also learned something during the story, so it had those parts. Well, it and, definitely um, did. Oh, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I was going to say it definitely did not, and maybe it's just because we've come to expect this from certain writers. But you know, if you read, for example, a Star Trek novel by Greg Cox, you're going to see so many ties into and, and Christopher L. Bennett. And others, you know, they do so many mentions of different episodes and just like seems like every page they're like referencing another episode. Um, 
but of course those are some later novels and, and this is earlier and we just don't have that. I don't know that it necessarily detracts from it, but you're right. It doesn't um, tie in the way a lot of novels do. It's kind of, you know, you could read it standalone. Um, and yeah, it's kind of, um, yeah, back then I think they, you know, they didn't all write the way they do now. Yeah, you're right. They do have more, more tie-ins now. So anyway, and the book was very heavy on science, which I wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't into as much, but it kind of, but, but it was okay. I mean, the, the story worked well, but it was still, I, I didn't like it as much as a lot of other books, you know, even from that time period. Um, yeah, it was heavy on science in some parts, although I've read some that are much heavier. Um, uh, that So this didn't seem too too much, but there there was a scene um, where the child, Raddick, is demonstrating this thing that the alien entity is building. And, of course, at the time, the Enterprise crew is not completely certain that, you know, they suspect the, crew, the Vulcans are being controlled by an alien, but they don't know. Um, and it's like this universe inside of a glass ball and everyone who looks at it sees something different. And that was kind of confusing reading it because they're like describing a lot of the science stuff and I'm reading it like, well, I don't really understand this. Okay. <laughs> but, but that's how it kind of always is for me when stuff gets really, and I know some people really like that, but for me when it gets like too heavy on the science and all these explanations, it's kind of just like techno babble, you know, so it does get that way because in Star Trek, you know, Star Trek is even though it's science fiction, we it's we like it more for the characters. I mean, usually that's the stories have to be mainly about the characters, and I mean this was to some extent, but it was still more about it was still more about Mason than anyone else. Yeah, um, I mean, I agree with all that, um, but you know, I still I enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was well written and it's a short, quick read. I was interested in the storyline from the pro. We didn't mention the prologue. Um, so the prologue actually starts out, uh, I guess, 10 or 15 years before the main storyline. And it's uh, the Vulcans to Prilla and her husband, Greg, um, on the planet. And um, they realize that something bad and they don't, you know, it doesn't hint as to what's happening, only that they're afraid of their own children and that Greg has told Tuprilla that he sent a message out for help, um, but because they cannot send subspace messages, um, it's going to take 10 years for the message to the message for help to reach anyone. Um, and so, uh, and of course, then you know, 10 or 15 years later, when the when the message is finally received, is when the crew, uh, when the Enterprise crew heads out. Um, so that was, I thought that was an interesting um, little prologue, although it was very brief. They kind of hint as to something's wrong with the children and we don't know what. Um, kind of in the way that um, sometimes you would see episodes, not so much on the original series, but on some of the other series where they might show uh, a little scene and then you have the uh, credits and then, uh, you know, the openings credits and then then it jumps forward to something else yeah yeah that was i think that was good writing i like what you know the books can can do something different like that have, have a have a scene that happened 10 years ago and because it relates to what's going to happen in the rest of the story 
So uh, any other overall thoughts? Um, no, I just, you know, uh, like I said, I, I, I did enjoy it despite its flaws. And if you have the paperback version, it's only 192 pages. So it's a quick read. Um, and, uh, you know, it's an interesting little story. Um, I had, had been eyeing it for a while because I knew that there were Vulcans as the main character and I'm interested in Vulcan stories. Um, but in this case, we don't really get too much about the, the Vulcans. So if, if someone's interested in that, you're not really going to see that too much in the story. Um, but, but otherwise, I mean, maybe I'd give it three out of five stars. Okay. For me, I kind of, the, the story was okay. I, I think that, um, it's probably, you know, recommended for people who, who like more science. And as you said, probably not, not as much for people who like Vulcans because it had Vulcans, but they were just, <clears throat> they were always under uh, mind influence by an outside force. So, and, and the book does add some things to the Vulcan culture, but, but not, not that enough. It's, it's not juicy enough, you know, for the Vulcans. Um, and, and the book was short. And the thing is, you know how we talked about there could have been more character moments. They could have had more scenes with um, with, with people talking, you know, just having the, the more of the interaction like we have in the more modern day books. And they could have, you know, added it to this book and it wouldn't have been too long. It would have been more like a regular length book. But um, overall, I think the book was it, it was OK, but it's just to me, you know, not really one of my favorites, but it does have a good story. And I think if you kind of. If you stick with it to the end, I mean, it, the the ending kind of is like is better than than the rest of the story. You just have to get through it to get to that ending. So um, I guess that's it then. Yeah, I guess we could say this one was well. I don't think we totally disagreed. Um, we, neither of us loved it, and and this is one where I guess if you're determined to read all Star Trek books, um, you know, this is definitely an okay one and not the worst, but. Um, probably I would not put it at the top of my list, um, you know, if you're just trying to read some of the better ones. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, and we'll be back later with another book. Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long, and may the force be with you. Nanu, nanu. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. So in the holodeck, we, uh, oh, so we had the name comment about, like, we're going to have a name, and he thinks we have a name, and then we get the grand reveal of that name in the holodeck. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we finally see the Doctor out of his natural habitat. Brienne of Tarth is there again, firing her arrows. And then it's like, fuck Schweitzer. They've named him Schweitzer. Schweitzer. I, it's stupid. It's a stupid name for a stupid holodeck program on a stupid episode Albert of this Albert Schweitzer is show. not a stupid name. Well, I, I mean, yeah, Albert Schweitzer was like a man of something or other that did some shit, but... <laughs> he was a doctor. <laughs> Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Her First Trek, a Star Trek preview podcast.
I'm not feeling him right now. What, Worf? Yeah. No, Worf is not good at this point on the show. Is he good at later point? Yeah. You don't like Worf? No, but you say that like I'm supposed to know. I obviously don't know. Well, on DS9, Worf is awesome. Oops. Spider. I was just going to say, he's not on DS9. Oh. Well, I've just given you a spoiler. Oh, come on. Okay. All right. Well, it's amazing we've done even four episodes before this where I haven't spoiled other stuff. You'll forget this anyway. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Star Podlog, the classic science fiction and fantasy podcast. Well, and, and it's amazing read, reading that description of the movie, because if I was going to write a description of Star Wars, that's not exactly what I would say. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, but yeah, yeah, it's neat to go back and read these and you're going, wow, that's just, you know, they, they don't really make it sound as exciting there, but they still, I mean, they make it look like, yeah, you want to see it, but, but not for, for those reasons exactly. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.